Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast, the podcast for tennis fans by tennis fans. Listen as the hosts break down the latest news and tournament results from around the tennis world. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced early each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Here are your hosts, Mike, Eric, and Michael. Hello and welcome to our deep dive series for the Tennis Attic Podcast. This is episode 2.1. I'm joined by Michael and Eric. Hey guys. All right, so for this deep dive, we decided to come up with a what-if scenario. Uh, when we first started out, you know, coming up with ideas for the deep dive, you know, of course we had mm-hmm. subjects and historical things, all that, and that's great. That's fun. You learn a lot when you kind of do a lot of research into something like we did with the tennis balls. But the idea of a what-if scenario is pretty cool because we do that all the time, right? We sit around, we talk, whether it's a tennis, football, you know, what if this had happened? How would that have changed a person's career or altered the sport itself, et cetera, et cetera. So for this, we decided to do what if Andre Agassi had loved tennis during his career? Now, for the people that don't understand what this question means, because, you know, let's face it, Agassi's been retired now for over a decade, they may not know And spoiler warning, if you actually want to read Agassiz's uh, autobiography, Open. It's so good. It's so good. One of the best I've ever read. It is pretty amazing. Um, But if you don't want to be spoiled, I'm just going to throw out a spoiler warning out there. So so turn this off and or skip ahead. All right. So in his autobiography, he admitted that he hated tennis all during his career growing up as a pro, all of it. And it was a big shock. It was a revelation uh, because – it's nothing that we, I think, watching him, and granted, we didn't watch him that long, unlike other people that did for his entire career, didn't realize that he hated tennis. Now, if you look at his career and you kind of look year by year, you'll see the signs, incidents, things like that. But at the time, I don't think anybody had any you know, idea whatsoever that he hated it. So what we decided to do is we're going to lay out Agassi's career in the first part of this series. And then the second part, we're going to give you the alternate reality scenario. So starting out when he's five years old, all the way up until he retires. So for the people that have no idea about Agassi in general, they didn't read his autobiography, they don't know a whole lot about the guy, you're going to learn a bit. And uh, the fun part's going to be, especially is when we get to the second part. And that's where we're going to kind of lay out uh, what it would have been like had he loved tennis, chosen tennis, as a kid, continue to love it and uh, get better and really dedicate himself to the sport like people like Roger, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, some of the players of today who really just love the game. And what would that have been like? So we're going to start out with this uh, this whole thing here at the age of five years old. So the first part here is ages five to 16. So if you look at Agassi as a kid, his father, Mike, was – he like the prototypical parent, uh, sports parent, like the crazy one, the one in the stands, like heckling the the refs, um, screaming at everybody and pushing their kid to the absolute limit, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally. And he is a crazy guy and um, if you read open, you'll understand uh, why in detail. So from a young age – Andre had to go out in the court. He had to hit hundreds, if not near a thousand balls a day. Now imagine being five years old and having to do that. Not a lot of fun. His father was relentless. 
put a lot of pressure on Andre. It, it was immense. He hated tennis. He just did not want to be out there. He'd often find you know reasons to take a break, get injured, things like that, and uh, just to not be out there, fake an injury, all of that. <clears throat> so between five and eight years old, it was pretty much a torture. And it never really stopped being a torture, but he just did what he was told. He did what his dad told him to do. And then from 9 to 12, ages 9 to 12, Andre started beating the local competition. He would make money kind of doing these semi-scams where he would act like he couldn't play so that people would, you know. Yeah, like it was like white men can't jump, okay? Right. Well, Eric, that's a reference that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it's uh, like like pool sharks too, too. You know, they act like they don't know how to play and then they, you know, make money. He was good at it. The pure pure way of saying it is hustling. Yeah, right. You're right. Hustling. And he would make a you know good chunk of money that way, um, especially for a kid his age. So to a certain extent, he never really had to worry about money because he could pretty much buy whatever he wanted within reason just by doing this. And uh, at the same time, he was beating you know the local competition. Like I said, he was beating players much older than he was. You know, imagine being 10, 11 years old and getting crushed if you're in the high school tennis team or even college. Uh, tennis players getting crushed by, you know, a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. kid. Right. And yeah. So he got to 13 years old and his dad's like, hey, look, I can't teach you anything more. I've pretty much reached my max as a coach and what I can I can show you. You need to go off and learn more and, and find somebody that can take you to the next level, essentially. So Mike Agassi sent him to the Nick Bulletary Academy. Uh, to further enhance his game. The problem is Agassi hated it. He hated being away from his family and he just did not want to be there in a foreign place. Didn't know anybody. All his friends are back home and he rebelled. He, he did all kinds of crazy stuff while he was there. Stuff that's in the book and probably a lot of stuff that isn't in the book, I'm sure. But he nearly got kicked out, right? Now, you know, from ages five to 16, it's clear that Agassi didn't want to play tennis. So I'm going to ask you guys a question here. How does this early experience in terms of hating the game, being forced to play uh, despite that, how does that inform who he is as a person and also to a certain extent as a player? Eric, why don't you start first? Um, I would say, I mean, it, it, it gives someone, it's a, it's a different sense uh because you know you're doing something you hate, so you look to the little bits of it that you can enjoy, which you know, making money um, and using that money to do the things you really wanted to do. You know, like you know, out in the academy when you get in the academy and that you kind of you know see what he does. You know, when you read the open. Things like that. So it was kind of like, you know, he was forced to do it because it was his dad's dream. It wasn't his dream. So you're basically living someone else's dream or doing it for them. So you don't have the same motivation to play. You're doing it just so they'll leave you alone. You know, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't enjoying, you know, his father. And, but, it, you know, his father is what he is. So, I mean, as I see as a person, it's going to affect him as a player. I mean, it's just, it's, it take it, you know, difference from like Roger Federer or Nadal 
who was, you know, given the choice, you know, Nadal's given the choice between soccer and tennis, you know, and he chose tennis and nobody forced him to. Um, so, you know, it, 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 I think in certain angle, it, it helped Agassi mm-hmm. um, in the long run, per se, because if you, you know, his dad never forced him to do this. Andre Agassi might have never played tennis. I mean, might have never known. Mm-hmm. Um, but having that type of experience, you know, while good for his game, when you hate it, you're not playing for the right reasons. And I don't think, you know, at that point he was playing to get money to do other stuff like a kid would want to do. Okay. That's, uh, that, yeah. yeah uh, Michael, uh, anything you want to add there? Yeah. I mean, in, in my mind as a person, um, and, and I mean, this will come up later on, but I mean, it basically, um, as a person, we see that although he's a driven individual, tennis is not what he's driven to do. Um, and we find out that, you know, again, as as Eric said, I agree that the money has to be at that point the biggest driving factor to even play at all. Um, and that it allows him then an outlet to go and do all the things that he wants to do. And then down the line, some things that maybe he shouldn't be doing. But the point is, uh, it was as a person um, at this point in time, we're seeing uh, an Andre that is basically looking for an outlet at any chance he can get to step away from tennis at this point. As a player, um, we obviously show that he has immense talent right from the start and that we um, see, although you know he doesn't like to play tennis, he's an extremely good player at an extremely early age. Um, so this tells us that as a player, he's extremely good. He has the ability to excel. It's just where he wants to take that. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so for me, I look at it this way. Uh, having a choice means a lot. If you're not given a choice, then you you feel – like you're backed up against, uh, backed into a corner constantly. Um, it's one thing to have a job when you get older, you know, you become an adult and you may not like the job that you do. You may not enjoy it. You might, but you have reasons to do it. Um, when you're a kid, it's a lot different, right? You shouldn't be forced to do something like this, especially at that young of an age. And I think as he's growing up from ages five to 16, He's simply trying to find the little moments that make things bearable. And as it um, informs him as a player, it's kind of sad because you already know that despite the level of talent that he has, which is immense, he's never really maximizing that talent. You know, he's he's doing what he's got to do, but he's never really – the heart isn't there, you know, at least not all the time. I'm sure there are moments. I'm sure there there are – matches or points in time where he is fully invested. I can't imagine that every single second out there was pure and utter torture. And and I hate to say this because it sounds awful, but I think he probably would have killed himself, you know? Like if it was that bad, if it was really that bad, you know, he yeah, could have Yeah, there was truly away. nothing right. that he enjoyed of it. Absolutely. Right. He but it's not it. but there were moments. I don't you know, I think there were times where he probably did enjoy himself out there. It's just ninety, eighty to ninety percent of the time he hated it. And it's probably what I think. But anyway, from a young age, it sucks. And it really, um, yeah, it didn't help him in the long run, I think. And we'll get more to that later. All right. So let's continue on the timeline here. Agassi, ages 16 to 26. 
So uh, Agassi is running around doing all these satellites, you know, all over the country, all over the United States with his brother. And at some point, he uh, he gets to the final. I think he wins the tournament. And if he accepts or if he turns pro, he gets the prize money. And, and I can't remember. I think it's something like four or $5,000, something like that. But he decides to, decides to turn pro. Uh, he never graduated high school. So he has limited options. Struggles with it, decides to turn pro. Hey, I have nothing to lose. And you know what? He shows promise. He manages to win a title in his first year, uh, ends up inside the top 50. And in 1987, which is his second year on tour, he picks up another title and finishes inside the top 25. Now, in 1988, Agassi uh, makes the semifinal of Roland Garros in the U.S. Open and wins six titles. And that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. And he, I believe he was number two in the world, I believe, in 1988 at the end of the year. Now, we get to 1989. He wins a title and makes the semifinal at the U.S. Open for the second year in a row. Again, he's making progress. But he's also facing backlash at the same time. He's he dresses oddly. He's got this big flowing mane of hair. It's it is colors uh, odd colors. Color. He's got uh, jean shorts on, um, hot lava uh, t-shirts, I believe, colored t-shirt. Um, he's just oh no, those are the he's pants. He's a rebel. Yeah, yeah, the pants. But he's like the rebel that tennis hasn't really had. It, I mean, tennis has had characters like Connors yeah, and and everything. It's the colorfulness. It's the it's all of it, the flash, the style, all of that, uh, which is more of a reflection of him trying to be something, you know. And we'll get more to this later, but I think it's it's safe to say that um, tennis players have to grow up in the limelight. But they still have to grow up. We just do it inside the safety of society. You know, we go to school, you know, with maybe hundreds of other people. We make mistakes. We grow up, but we're not inside, you know, in the public eye like Agassi was. Uh, but that's him just expressing himself or trying to show something. Uh, so, age is 20 to 23. So, uh, 1990, uh, Andre wins um, or makes two finals, uh, Roland Garros and the U.S. Open, but he loses both. Uh, at this time, his hair was – he was losing his hair and he had a a wig, right, on his head, like a yeah. toupee or something. And he was keeping it in with pins uh, and he thought that it was going to fall off. Uh, lost the U.S. Open to Pete Sampras, who at the time was nobody. I mean – he was he was an up and comer, but Andre was the favorite to he win. He wasn't yet Pete. Yes, yeah. He was just this promising young player who had you know risen up the ranks the last couple of years. But he lost pretty easily, by the way. Uh, go to 1991. Andre makes it to his second Roland Garros final, but loses to Jim Courier, a fellow classmate at the Bulletary Academy. 1992. Andre finally wins his first Grand Slam which is uh, Wimbledon in this really classic five-setter, uh, great match. And then in 1993, he ends up, um, ends up being a year where he suffers a major wrist injury. 
and he actually uh, has to get surgery. He, they try to rehab it, doesn't work. They wait, doesn't work, and then eventually he has to get surgery. Basically, 1993 for the most part is a wash. All right, so then we go into 1994. He hires Brad Gilbert and absorbs his teachings, goes on to win the U.S. Open, and he does so as an unseated player, uh, the first player since... Well, he was dating Brooke Shields at the time, and I know his her grandfather was the last person to do that, oddly enough. <laughs> so then we move on to 1995. He continues to win and um, does so by winning the uh, Australian Open, defeats Sampras in the final, and it was the first Australian Open he'd ever been to, and he wondered why he never, <laughs> never went there. Like, for some reason, he just... Decided never to go to the uh, Australian Open until 1995, you know, almost a full decade into his career. Uh, goes on a tear through the summer hardcourt season, culminating in a loss in the US Open, badly losing to Sampras. Um, and that will lead us into the next part. But before we get there, we've got some questions. So, Eric, Andre uh, appears to have finally mastered, I think, some of his demons at this point uh, and found a way to be successful on the court. So uh, he has a team that supports him. What do you think this like this point of his career has been like? Is he underachieved, overachieved? Um, I think underachieved at that point. Uh, you know, I think that skipping the Australian Open was uh, the biggest mistake one of the biggest mistakes of his career, not just not playing it, always skipping, skipping it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, Wimbledon being his first grand slam was a surprise considering, you know, his take on Wimbledon didn't like that. They had their roles and he had to wear white and, you know, didn't like grass, you know, playing growing up. I remember him saying something about that, like just not liking grass or it felt odd to him. So like, it was kind of, you know, surprising that that'd be an overachievement. <laughs> His first grand slam was at Wimbledon, but, you know, considering he was the favorite to win, you know, the, the two Roland Garros finals that he was in us open when he loses uh, to Pete, you know, I would say he, you know, underachieved, uh-huh. but he didn't have the right people you know, around him, he needed Brad and Brad's, you know, just bluntness and telling you what you're doing wrong, you know, kind of giving, giving you the, the talks that Brad, you know, the Brad gives, um, you know, at this point he's turning it around. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of what could have been if, uh, if he'd had Brad sooner. So I would say, you know, at this point he, un- he kind of underachieved, you know, yeah, he, uh, he wins the US Open. He's got a Wimbledon. He's got an Australian Open. Um, but, you know, he's three for six right now for majors Okay. Uh, in finals. So I would say, you know, considering he was the favorite in basically all the other ones too, um, he should have, it'd be, I'm, I'm saying underachievement right now okay. at this point in his career. All right, Michael, uh, anything you want to add there? Your uh, take on I mean, it? I mean, absolutely underachieved. Um, I feel like had he found Gilbert a little earlier, maybe mm-hmm. um, that that might have been able to change things and, and probably would have turned around at least at least one of those Grand Slam uh, final losses. Um, but I mean, at this point in time, again, we have to we have to still think here. So he played the first ten years of his career, 
still not truly loving tennis, maybe. Um, so we still have to look at it that way and say that although he had success at an early age, um, you know, we're still talking that he's still, as Eric said, he's still three of six. So he's three and three in finals. Um, has a couple of other instances where he plays well at some slams and, and gets to the point where, you know, he's deep into tournaments, but he's not winning them. Uh, I just, again, feel like underachieving because I think he could have had things been a little different, maybe uh, changed those things around and, and done better. So at this point in time, yes, underachieved. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think he definitely is underachieved, especially at this point in his career, considering back then it younger players could come on the tour and really do something. You know, there's a history of teenage prodigies uh, blowing onto the scene and just totally upending the entire tour. And he did that. Uh, one of the one of the last, really, to do that. And um, I think he really missed out on a lot of opportunities. You know, he really could have taken the whole tour by storm and uh, really ran away with a lot of that momentum, and he didn't. But uh, yeah, three and three. Yeah, certainly three Grand Slams, but... At this point, he's in his mid twenties. He should be, he should be destroying everybody pretty much at this point. Um, but he's he's kind of yeah. getting there. That but, still comes back. Yeah. To, that still comes back to him hating tennis. Still, yeah, though, sure. Yeah, and that's why I experienced. Yeah, that's that's why I brought that. Yeah, up. It's, it's a seesaw affair. You know, it swings to yeah, this game isn't too bad. To oh, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And uh, yeah, you can't do that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of players on tour today, at least some players on tour that you can tell are similar, you know, in terms of their view of the game. All right, so let's move on here. Uh, continue the timeline. So Agassi, ages 26 to 36, or essentially retirement. Uh, ages 29 or 26 to 29. So after the U.S. Open loss, Sampras uh, completely devastated him. He had like I said, had this massive run in uh, late 95 in the summer hard court and was undefeated, was more or less just destroying everybody. Uh, probably at that point, I would say the only time in his career where I would say it was the closest he'd ever come to loving the game. I mean, he really had a purpose. I mean, it was a little bit of a revenge tour on Boris Becker, uh, but at the same time, it shows you what a focused Andre Agassi you know, with a purpose could do, you know, and he was in his, you know, he was in his prime. He was in his mid twenties, but he got to the U S open final. There possibly was uh, uh, an injury issue, but regardless he lost. And it was a, it was a massive loss. It was like maybe the most devastating loss in his entire career at that point, if not ever. And that loss started a downward spiral for Agassi. So we go into 1996 and he does. I mean, he just pretty much spirals. I mean, he has a couple of decent results at the slams there. But for the most part, his year is more or less a, a bit of a wash. Uh, he comes out of his funk long enough to win the Olympic gold medal in 1996 at the Atlantic or Atlanta uh, Olympic Games. But otherwise, doesn't really do a whole lot. Then we move on to 1997. And, and honestly, that's the real low point. I mean, he barely plays at all. I mean, if you look He's absent, absent, absent from, I believe, three of the four Grand Slams. Uh, and I want to say he made like the fourth round possibly or the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. And that was it. Uh, he barely played, um, wasn't competitive at all. So then we move on to 1998 and 
Brad kind of gives him this ultimatum. He more or less says, look, if you're going to do this, do it. If you're not, just retire. And this is a bit of the turning point for his uh, his character in his game because it's the it's the first time where he is given a choice. It's weird, right? Because he could give himself a choice, but it literally took Brad standing there and saying, you can either retire right now or you can, you know, so we can start over, start fresh and, you know, from the ground up and see what we can do. And he, he's given that choice and he actually decides, you know what? Let's do this thing. And it makes all the difference. And it sounds crazy, but it does. So 1998, return to form, wins five titles and plays, you know, a relatively competitive year that year. Um, 1999, this is where Andre makes his first, like not his first, but like his biggest comeback. It's like his full comeback as a player because for two years, he pretty much did nothing. And he wins three Grand Slam titles. He wins or... Goes to three Grand Slam finals, uh, wins two, Roland Garros in the U.S. Open, and does so uh, completing the career Grand Slam, uh, winning Roland Garros, which is uh, a unicorn that he chased for his entire career pretty much. Um, So that was a big deal. So then we move on to 2000. He wins the Australian Open, and these years, it's weird. We're hitting the end of Sampras's career, and there's a bit of a turnover on the tour. And Agassi, in a way, is kind of just starting over. It's like his second career here, and he really takes advantage of it. So we 2000, he has a good year, wins the Australian Open, wins it again in 2001. Now, 2002, he has some injury issues. Um, doesn't win the Australian Open, doesn't win anything, but he doesn't make, <clears throat> it to, doesn't make it to the U.S. Open final and loses to Sampras there. So then we go on to 2003. Again, he wins the Australian Open. So that's three out of four years. Uh, pretty fantastic. Wins another four titles. And uh, makes it to the... Uh, or, yes, 2003. 2004, he makes it to the semifinals of the Australian Open. He has a solid year. Uh, 2005, he starts dealing <laughs> with a bunch of injuries. Uh, but rebounds to make the US Open final, crazily enough, at 35 years old. And loses in four sets to Roger Federer. Um, that match had a chance to do, had a chance to go back the other direction, but uh, it didn't. Um, and so he kind of anoints Federer as, as the the next great player. Two thousand six, more of the same. A bunch of injuries. I couldn't really do much that year. Uh, and played his final match at the U.S. Open, losing to Benjamin Becker, but. In the round before that, he played one of the all-time great matches in tennis history against Marcos Bagdadis, a five-setter, absolute stunner. If you have a chance to go watch this match, I highly recommend it. So after yeah, that – very late into the evening. Yes, very, very late into the evening. So uh, he loses to Benjamin Becker and he essentially retires from tennis. So getting to some of the questions here. All right. Michael, so the mid to latter part of Agassi's career is really the most fruitful. So how much of the last six to seven years of his career alter the way you look at him as a player? Well, obviously, we have to look at, you know, again, over a 10-year time period, he made many, many finals. He won many tournaments, uh, as well as winning many, many grand slams. So what we talk about here is we, we look at, 
again, everything is always gauged upon uh, how many slams that you win. Okay, we we've already talked about that in multiple podcasts, and everybody's talked about. It. That's just the way that things are. But um, in my eyes, I mean, I've always looked at Andre um, as, and, and you guys have too. We've all looked at him as probably the best pure striker in the history of the game from the baseline. Uh, purest strokes off of forehand and backhand side, you know, able to redirect, uh, you know, shots as good as anybody, if not better, and just his pure ability on court. Um, the funny thing is though, when we look at it that way and we look at him as a player that way, I also say that he definitely was not the most athletic player either. So, you know, if in terms of things, looking at it that way, you know, although he was the best pure, uh, you know, hitter in the game, uh, he definitely was not the most athletic. So I feel like in the back half of his career, I kind of feel like, I don't want to say he overachieved, but I think that he excelled to the max that he could have in the given situation. I think that most of his stuff could have been in the early part of his career that he could have really impacted his uh, full career as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how – and that, that leads into your second point. How do you view his career in full? Um, basically, as a whole, I look at him as – uh, one of the most complete players on tour ever. Uh, I definitely agree that he's the best pure striker uh, from the baseline of, of any player, um, just on his pure ability, um, even given that he wasn't the most athletic guy in the world. But um, I, 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 don't know, I don't know how to answer that in a another roundabout way other than that. I, I don't know. Eric, you might have a slightly better way of encompassing that than I do. Um, I, yeah, uh, so I'm going to go with, you know, the, the mid latter part of the career is very fruitful. Uh, it's fruitful for a couple of different ways. You know, you, you got to remember he married Brooke Shields in 97, mm-hmm. you know, and it's around the time where, you know, he still hated tennis and, you know, uh, the first injury in 93 happened comes back, kind of wins, goes on um, after he wins the Olympics. 97 gets married to Brooke and then, you know, decides that he really would, you know, rather not play. He's hated tennis. Now he's got a chance to be, you know, be with somebody. We obviously knew Brooke wasn't the right one for him and so on and so forth. Um, you know, he comes back, 98 plays pretty good, but it's not until, you know, he gets divorced, you know, in 99, and he even said in his book, you know, you know, once the divorce went through it, you know, it, it, it you know, a big weight off of his back. Mm-hmm. Um, he realized at that point that, you know, he, he it went from like hating tennis to then respecting tennis to then realizing he loves tennis. And that's when he realized like 99 is when he realized that he loved tennis. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I th- I think if if you know, and then he re- obviously realized you know he was chasing Steffi kind of from a distance, and it, but never you know Brooke came into the picture, and you know at that point I mean Brooke Shields was Brooke Shields, so you know that that was what it was. But personal life intervened a bit. Um, I think that's when he started loving tennis, though in '99, um, and, and realized that that he enjoyed it. If it would have been 
like I said, we'll get into the next part, but I, I think that's what happened. And that's why the latter half um, was really good. And then you see why he played until 05 because he didn't want to quit, you know, every day he wanted to go out and play more. And, and, you know, it's, it's one of those funny relationships with something that you hate it because you're forced to do it. And you wonder if you would have loved it the entire time versus then, you know, what could have been, I think his career in full was great. Uh, we're going to get into, you know, a, a little bit about something else here, but I think, you know, considering the time period, yeah, you look at it now and you've got three players that are still active that have more Grand Slam titles than him. But in that era, um, he was definitely one of the best of all time. He still is. But even then, you would put him in the top, you know, five to eight maybe uh, uh-huh. of all time just because, you know, you don't just look at it titles one. You look at everything they've been through. He's been through a lot in his career, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, you know, public eye. You know, a, a lot of players weren't, you know, Bjorn Borg wasn't you know flashy and you know doing all these commercials and all this fun stuff you know he was more of a quiet player so you know it was very different um a career than most people so Uh i would say while i think it could have been better and what could have been i think it was a wonderful career um that he had especially it was a long one not not too many players play for 20 years yeah um yeah, he to me, I think um, the back half of his career was the most fruitful because I think that's when he finally became a, f- a fit player, like a truly fit player. He hired Gil Reyes in 1990, uh, Gil being a real fitness uh, guru kind of player. But Agassi never really stuck to the nutrition thing like he should have. You know, he would go and have these hard workouts and then go to like Taco Bell or something, you know, <laughs> um, or go grab a milkshake. Um, so – it wasn't till around 98 or so when he finally decided, okay, we're going to do this, that he actually started to train properly. The nutrition aspect, definitely. And ultimately, it made him the best, one of the best, if not the most fit player on tour at the time, even when he got to the point where he was over 30. Um, I think that uh, he took advantage of the situation. You know, Pete was getting towards the end of his career. There was a lot of new younger players and his experience allowed him to navigate some of those, uh, you know, bigger slams like the Australian Open, which he'd won, you know, three out of four years. He really made sure, you know, after not playing it for the first 10 years of his career, he definitely took advantage of that in the second half of his career. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, how do I view his career in full? I think he's a, a great, great player. Um maybe the best pure ball striker of all time uh, took the ball on the rise before anybody did that and it maybe did it best as well you know um, I'm going to throw out some career stats here for everybody to give you an idea of his uh, career encapsulated so 1986 to 2006 20 years or 870 to uh, 274 record that's a 76% winning percentage Career titles, 60. Grand Slams, 8. Four Australian Opens, one Roland Garros, one Wimbledon, two U.S. Opens. Record against Pete Sampras, his great rival, 14-20. and 20. 
He was one in four in Grand Slam finals. And, uh, of course, Pete Sampras had 14 Grand Slam titles at the time, a, a record uh, that would eventually be passed by Roger Federer. But you look at these stats and you're like, you know, that's not too bad for a guy that hated tennis for a majority of his career. So, not too bad, Great. not too shabby. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But did he underachieve? I think he did. Yes. I think he for, did. Yeah, for, for considering the talent that he had, knowing, you know, there could have been a lot more, you know, he's a, a bit of uh, like the Australian we, we handled, Leighton Hewitt, where there could have been more. Yeah. Different reasons, but essentially the same thing. Had, had this yeah. changed, yeah. more could have happened. All right, so that's it for uh, this first part of our Deep Dive series. We're not going to move on to the second part. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Addict Podcast by Freaking Geeks Media. Be sure to visit FreakingGeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Freaking Geeks for more great content. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps. If you would like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanik or at FreakGeeks. Intro music for this episode is Danger Storm by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Outro music is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can also find the attribution in the episode description as well.